Welcome to the podcast of The Table of Minneapolis Church. We are a community that is committed to practicing the ways of Jesus by creating space for all to belong and be loved. Our hope is that in this podcast, in the message that you will hear, that you'll be reminded again of the eternal truth that no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, the places that you've gone or the places that you've stayed, that there will always be a seat here for you at the table. For you're a child of God, and beloved, you belong. Enjoy this week's message. So I, I have a microphone on my head, which I understand the implication of that is that means that I should have something that I need to say tonight. Um, I told my wife today that I don't know that I do, which is always concerning. I was hoping it was going to be a thinner crowd tonight, but I see you really filled this thing to the brim. So that's great. Um, I went outside last night. And I sat on our back porch. And um, I was really angry. Taking in the context of all that's gone down in this past week, I was really angry, fatigued, frustrated. So many things that have been said, so many things that are being done, all of these things being said and done under the name of Christianity. Harm under the name of Christianity. We live in a complicated time. We live in a time right now where our country still tells the world, bring to us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses who are yearning to breathe free. And of course, when they come, we put kids in cages. We make up new asylum laws while people are standing in line. We live in a complicated time where on Tuesday, after five years ago when a black man was choked to death, five years later, a police officer who killed him still does not go to jail and still is gamefully employed. We live in a complicated time. And then on Wednesday night, thousands of Christians, Christians, people who pledged their allegiance to the refugee king, gathered at a rally in North Carolina and shouted, send her back, about our refugee queen, our local leader, our sister, our family. We live in a complicated time. In that same space, we watched the President of the United States step away from the mic for 12 seconds as he was able to bask in his own bigotry being chanted back towards him. If we're not angry, we're not paying attention because we live in a complicated time. We live in a time where somebody in this room right now is feeling like that my role as a pastor should not be to speak on anything of this nature, that I'm being divisive and being kind of political. Stop that. We need to put away those childish things. We need to grow up because we live in a complicated time. And so the question then becomes, how do we live in a time like this? When I was talking to my wife last night, I kept having this memory that a friend sent me not long ago of a Jonathan Edwards sermon that looked like this. I I was thinking about this not because um, of what the sermon was written about, but what the sermon was written on. Jonathan Edwards, in 1731, he is like that legendary revival preacher. In 1731, he takes a trip in the afternoon from Connecticut to Rhode Island to purchase for himself a 14-year-old African girl named Venus, whom he will make his household slave. 
this sermon that he wrote in his leisure time, which was purchased for him by his, his slave labor, this sermon right here was written on the back of the receipt from that purchase. The sermon was on God's fidelity to us and our task of being faithful to God. I mean, just, just sit and think about that right there. On one side of a paper, you have a poetic and, dare I say, prophetic sermon. And on the back side, it speaks of the purchase of a young girl. On one side, you have a man who is writing about God. On the back side, it speaks about the purchase of a young girl. This is an image that has been stuck in my mind since I woke up this morning. This is an image that it, it reflects who we are in many different ways. Because for me, at least, in many different ways, I feel like a lot of our personal history with Christianity, we have been stuck staring at one side of the paper, and all of a sudden we are becoming aware that there was another side this entire time, and we had no idea that it existed. We had no idea that under the name of Christ, our Christ, under the guise of Christianity, evil was being perpetuated, preserved, and pushed forward in all different ways. From the xenophobia and the homophobia in our pulpits to the bigotry that we see in our politicians. The Christian church right now is going through a season of exposure. We're being exposed as guilty for prioritizing this, these attempts to understand God at the expense of undertaking what it looks like to maybe live godly. All head, no hands. All head, no heart. One paper, two different sides. We can't do that anymore. That's gross. That's antichrist. It's wrong. It needs to stop. But that then begs the question of what does it mean to start? And what gets in our way of actually faithfully starting in some kind of pursuit towards Jesus? What would that actually look like to be committed to the kingdom in a holistic and faithful way? We're entering into a series tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at the life of the kings in the Bible, specifically David. And the reason we're going to do so is because these are complex stories and we are living in complicated times. And we need to see how the light breaks through their cracks if we're ever going to see how the light's breaking through ours. And so we're going to go into those stories. We're going to be entering into this series. And I want to tell you, though, that I intended to get to 1 Samuel 16 and the story of David's origins tonight, but I actually got tripped up right before. I started to realize that when I asked the question of how do you live in times like this and what is keeping us from living right in times like this, I don't have the totality of an answer to that kind of a problem, but one of the pieces that we could possibly respond to that with is identified in this text. And I heard it not in a Trump rally out east, but in my own inner turmoil when I started wrestling over this text. And so I want to give you this story that's in 1 Samuel 16. Um, little context. So King David is not King David. King David is shepherd boy out in the hills. While he is out in the hills watching the sheep, there is another king on the throne named Saul. Saul, it has been declared, is no longer fit to hold the office that he holds. He has become paranoid. He has become impulsive. He has become trigger happening. He's become manipulative. And Samuel, the prophet, says, this man is a mess and we need you, God, to make it right. And so the text tells us that Samuel goes to God. And he says, we need to gather the appropriate impeachment papers and start the process of removing Saul from the throne because this cannot go on. 
There are too many lives that are suffocating underneath the status quo. And we can't just sit idly by while evil is reigning like that. God says, I don't, I don't disagree with you, Samuel. In fact, I can do you one better. I know a guy named Jesse in Bethlehem who has about 75 different boys. One of them is the right boy for the next king. Samuel goes, well, that's, that's great and all, God. But that's not in the cards because this is not a democracy. I can't just go pick a new king while there already is a king. If I go and pick a new king while somebody's already on the throne, that's treason. They will string me up for something like that. I'll get killed if I, I can't do that. God says, you can actually. Now read this text. 1 Samuel 16, 2-4. Samuel said, how am I supposed to go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said, which leads me to ask, what is it exactly that the Lord just said? This text is the one that tripped me up because for me, as I read it, I kept thinking about being back in eighth grade and telling my mom that I was going to go to the movie theater to see Gone in 60 Seconds, which upon arrival, I was in there for about 60 seconds before I went to the rated R movie next door. And when I came back home, my mom asked me, like, how was the movie? I said, it was great. And she said, did you see Gone in, I saw Gone in 60 Seconds. Now, is that a lie? Not necessarily, it, but it wasn't exactly the truth either. And she went to found out if I had better judgment in my friends at a younger age and didn't pick people who didn't have big fat mouths that would steal on me all the time like that. But instead, they had a crush on my mom, so they went to my mom and told her the truth. I ended up getting grounded. My whole point is, if what I did was considered a lie, how is what God is doing here not considered the same? Read the story. Samuel says to God, God, I can't go because if I go, uh, Saul's going to be very upset and I will be dead. God says, that's not a problem. Tell him you're going to church. That's all you need to do. Tell him that you're going to make a sacrifice. And when you're there, in between that third and fourth worship song, right when KJ's really getting going, you go and you anoint the son. This is the text that had me wondering all kinds of things like, okay, so what does this say about the nature of the divine? What does this say about who God was, who God is? How do we understand this character of God in light of who we know Christ to be? How, what do we do with all this? This is the text and those are the questions that were tripping me up until I realized that those weren't the questions that were tripping the rabbis up. When I actually started to research this text and the conversations that hovered around it, I realized that the rabbis didn't have concerns like this at all. In fact, I realized that my kinds of questions that were keeping me up at night would have been absolutely absurd to ancient rabbis wrestling with this text. If I would have asked them, can you make sense? Can you tell me how it's okay that God told Samuel to lie? That would have sounded to them no different than me asking, how tall is the color blue? Or how fast can the number five run? It just doesn't make sense in that way. And I found a story that helps illustrate why. During World War II, uh, the Vatican, they hid Jews inside of their monasteries. For a period of time, they had decided that collectively they were going to keep Jews safe inside of their, of their monasteries. 
until some priests felt like the Jewish people who they were protecting were now overstaying their welcome. And so they went to the Pope and they said, something's got to give. We, we can't keep holding up this, this, this isn't our job. We don't do this. This isn't on us. Pope says, I, I see your point. I'm not going to just flippantly throw them out into the streets. So how about we do this instead? You go talk to their lead rabbi and you tell their rabbi to, to face off with me in a debate. If they win the debate, they can stay as long as they like. But if they lose, then they're going to have to go. They go to the rabbi. Rabbi agrees to the terms. They meet. Here's the problem. The rabbi and the pope, they don't speak the same language. Second problem is they don't want to have this as a public debate. In fact, they want it to be very, very private. And so they decided that they're going to communicate all of the content of the debate via hand signals and hand signals alone. And so they get into this private room and they sit down one from the other. Rabbi on one side, the Pope on the other. And the Pope immediately begins the date by holding the number three into the air. The rabbi responds and puts number one into the air. Pope kind of shakes his head. Rabbi then goes on to draw a circle with his hand. The Pope goes on to draw a circle with his hand. The rabbi, in response to the circle, points his finger at the ground. And now the Pope's like, man, this is, this is more than I bit off. This is more than I was anticipating here. So the Pope gets up and he walks to the back table where there is a plate of bread and wine. He proceeds to pick it up and walk it over to the rabbi with a smile and he sets it before him. The rabbi stands up. He pulls an apple out of his pocket and the Pope sits down and collapses and then the rabbi walks out of the room. Once the rabbi walks out, other priests walk into the room and they surround the Pope wanting to know what just went down, what just happened. And the Pope tells him, he says, the community can stay because the rabbi had an answer for everything that I just did. First, I held three fingers out loud up in the air to signify the triune nature of God, but the rabbi held one finger, reminding me of God's unity. And then I held my hand up like an idiot and waved it in a circle to talk about how God has this, God is present in the heavenly realms and in all things. But the Pope reminded me quickly while pointing to the ground that God is close to the earth. He is with us and for us. Finally, I was grasping my final straw and I showed him the bread and wine, introducing him to the body and the blood of Christ Jesus, the second Adam. But immediately the rabbi he pulled out an apple, reminding me of the fall and the first Adam who preceded the sacrifice of Christ. The community can stay. In the other room, the rabbi is getting peppered in the same way. The other rabbis want to go around and they want to ask the chief what just happened. He says it actually was incredible. I can't believe what just happened. First, the man tells me that we have three days to leave. But I signal and say that not one of us are going to go. Then he says that he's going to round us all up, but I told him that we are staying rooted to this spot. We will not move. The leaders, they're leaning in on the rabbi and they say, so what happened next? And he goes, well, that's the most frustrating piece of all. He decided that we needed to break for lunch. And that was it. I love that story. I love that story because it exposes our problem. It speaks directly into the fact that though we may hold the same text as our Jewish brothers and sisters, we look at it in very different ways. 
For much of Christianity, the most hostile thing to our faith has been the way that we have looked at what we carry most sacred to us, our text. Because what we have done, what has hijacked us more often than not, is that we have made Christianity to be about how we arrange our intellectual furniture instead of what we are to do with our hands, where we are to walk with our feet. In the Christian world, we are taught to think about the ethical life through a metrics of morality. This is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is bad. This is on and this is off. This is lying and this is not. And in doing so, by having these safe categories and these fixed formulas and putting these creeds in concrete, what we have done is we have created this phobia and this anxiety in Christians today. We have belittled the beauty of the gospel And it's rendered the church only to be fixated on not doing anything wrong at the expense of ever doing anything right. It's made the church be in this preventative mindset. How do we keep from doing harm instead of asking the question, how are you going to go out and do good? How are you going to pursue what is worthy of pursuing? Not just dodge, which that might take you down. We do this with our kids. Uh, we say things like, um, what's the classic Baptist line? Mom, you here? You, you didn't always say this to me. Dad, you did. But we don't smoke, chew, or hang out with girls that drew, do. Classic line, right? No? Nobody else. Just mowers. Okay, all right. Healthy upbringing. We create purity cultures. Raise kids who are terrified of sex. We have kids bite off pieces of soap bars whenever they swear. But do we punish kids when they fail to go out of their way to do something good at the expense of themselves? Do do we ever get our, our kids ever get in trouble when they fail to sit with the lonely kid in the lunchroom? Do we ever confess the sins of not protesting and putting our bodies on the lines like we should? We've created a religion that is all prohibitive and no proactivity going on. And that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how it was. In the Hebrew imagination, they wouldn't have understood it like this. For the rabbi, the Bible doesn't speak into abstract beliefs. It speaks into our actual lives and our bodies. It speaks into lunch. It speaks into the next move. It speaks into what is going to happen to move us closer to God's shalom and move us further away from the disrepair that we've been in our entire lives. Every inch of scripture is is being soaked into our stories for the purpose of formation, not just information. Who are we becoming? The Hebraic understanding of scripture, they had to hold it like this because they tried to hold it like we do and they found out that it does not work. You have heard this said time and time again, but when you think about Jewish laws, the common number that gets brought up is that there is 613 different Jewish laws that Jewish people were called to abide by and obey. So we hear that and we think, man, that's legalistic. But here's the truth of the matter. What they recognized in carrying those laws was that while some of those laws were good and great, When you carry all of them, it can't be done. For example, one of the laws says that if you have a donkey that falls into a ditch, you by law have to pick it up. We could probably get some bipartisan support on that one. Nobody has any beef there. Another law says that when it's the Sabbath, you can't work. You can't go to the office. You can't write that email. That's fine. We're two for two. But tell me what I'm supposed to do if I'm walking down Lake Street, donkey in hand, my donkey falls into a ditch, and it happens to be on the Sabbath. 
It no longer works. The laws are in conflict. It's a lose-lose. And so what gives? Do I break the law of the Sabbath or do I leave my donkey? What's, what's the fix here? What they realize is that instead of making morality into this list of right and wrong, this and not that, good and bad, off and on, what they realize is that we need to talk about our laws and the way that we walk through the world in a matter of weights. They didn't ask, was it right? They asked, which law is heavier? And we see this come up in the life of Jesus all the time. Jesus is constantly being put into a predicament where the Pharisees are trying to trap him and say, which law do you find to be heavier? Which one matters more? And in return, Jesus goes to the Pharisees and he wants to ask them the same thing. He calls them out not for misreading the law, but for failing to go to the scale and recognize the weight at hand as it is. Matthew 23, there's a moment just like that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You've practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a nap, but you swallow a camel. Jesus, he, he's not mad at them for straining out a mat, nap. He's mad at them for swallowing the camel. He calls them blind. He says, you cannot see. What can't they see? That our scripture, our Bible, our story that calls us into formation is not a plateau. It has peaks and it has valleys. Not all laws are created equally. And so you need to know in complicated times like we are in today, which law is heavier? Which law is heaviest? If the Bible becomes a plateau, then all laws are equal and we can abdicate ourselves from committing our ways to love based on lesser laws that Jesus is not as concerned about. And it keeps us from being proactive and it keeps us from being uh, true reconcilers like we are called to be. You have forgotten the weightier matters, Jesus says. You've misread the peaks as plateaus and nobody's getting any better because of it. When we have arenas filled with Christians yelling xenophobic things out loud, those are people who are seeing plateaus when they should have been seeing peaks. When the expert in the law goes up to Jesus and he says, of all the 613 laws, when you sum it all up, when you break it all down, which law is the greatest? That word greatest is actually a word for weight. Which law weighs the most? What does Jesus say? Love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. If anything is keeping you from doing that faithfully, if anything is trying to hijack you from being for all of your neighbors, that thing doesn't weigh as much as this thing does and that thing needs to go. Christianity cannot be defined by lesser weighing things being our central calling card. It is time we go back to our true story. The rabbis did not ask, was it okay for God to lie in this moment? Because they weren't fixated on God lying. They were fixated on God taking this ask and this task of liberation in this moment. Do we prioritize love at expense to self above all other things? 
Jesus summed it all up in those words right there. Love God, love neighbor. Paul summed it all up by saying the gospel, if you really want to know, if you really needed to break it down into a short story form, it's about freedom. It should make you more free. And if it's not making you more free, then you should probably get away from it. It's not the good news that we thought it would be. Micah, the prophet. Debbie, what does Micah tell us? It's your favorite thing. Micah the prophet says, when you sum it all up, when you break it all down, be people who do justice. See the peak of walking humbly. Are we people who see the peaks? Jesus, when he approaches the Pharisee like that, he makes it clear that he is a person who is going to the text with some assumptions in mind. There are some things that weigh more than other things. And that thing always will be, always must be, love. Love of neighbor at expense to self. This is why some of the world's greatest lovers have also been, you could call them liars. When Corey Ten Boone was asked whether or not Jews were hiding in her house, she lied and said no, but she loved When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was asked if he pledged allegiance to the Nazis, he lied and said yes, but he loved. This whole thing in 1 Samuel 16, our understanding of this text, this isn't a condoning of lying, don't hear me say that, but this is a recalling of our commitment to love above all else. Love will pull you into places that you thought you previously would not go. Will you have the courage to go anyways? Or will it always be walking through a minefield, making sure you are doing no harm, but failing to do anything that's actually good? Failing to be where you need to be. If this is making you cringe at all, I get it. I understand that. I understand the the inclination in all of us. I feel it in me in a world where the shifting sands are beneath our feet. I understand the desire to have something that is concrete, something that is formulaic. But in my experience, when I think contextually as a country, but also think as a person, in our stories as a community, life is the master of throwing curveballs. It doesn't throw us softball pitches. It doesn't make it easy. We are constantly walking into scenarios where we need to ask the question, what does it look like to be faithful now? And inside of our answer, it has to be with our eyes on the peaks of love and not the lesser weighing laws. The reason we can do that, the reason why we have to do that is because it's what Jesus did. It's how Jesus saw the text. Faith is not about finding a finish line disconnected from life. Faith is about being formed for the purpose of life. In the story of Jesus is who you are becoming good for the world. Are you being formed into the good news or are you just growing more and more familiar with it? God does not save us from discernment. God saves us through discernment. In complicated times like this, we need competent thinkers who are able to go into these spaces. Not as blind guides, but as people who know the weight of the weight of your matters. And we are faithful in those ways. Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for this space. Lord, we pray for the courage to be faithful to you. Lord, we pray for the courage to be true to you. 
to trust God the peaks of love and not settle for anything less. Christ, you are good. In Christ, we are grateful. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. Matt started um, his message with talking about the fact that we live in complicated times. And my guess is that many of us did walk in these doors today, um, maybe tired, frustrated, confused, angry. A lot of things went on this week in our community, in our world that were hard to stomach. But we do, we live in complicated times. And the question, like Matt said, is how do we live? How are we called to live? And that's the beauty of us gathering on Sunday night is that we can gather together and we can remind each other, we can remember in the midst of all the confusion and the complications that we have one allegiance. Our fidelity is to one God, a God we know in Jesus Christ, a God who walked this earth and taught us what it meant to be merciful and just and faithful. So we get to take a break from the complications and we get to be reminded that we live out a love, a love that was given freely to us. And so on Sunday evenings, we break bread, we dip it into the cup, and we remember a God that loved us so much that he set himself aside so that we might have the full life. And so that in complicated times, we might be reminded that it's not hopeless, it's not over. We have a God that loves us and invites us all to the table. The night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he broke bread. And after giving thanks to his father above, he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me, the new covenant. And that's what we do. We invite you during the music to come as you'd like and there'll be gluten-free elements on the right and gluten-full on the left. And you can take the bread and dip it into the cup. And when we do that, we can pause and we can be all filled up with this gift of love that we have from Jesus. So with that, please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power of